Chapter 2, Part 3 The First Direct Clue The law-abiding citizen goes around New York with little knowledge of the crowding underworld all about him. It is perhaps just as well that he knows nothing of the lives and morals of hundreds of people who elbow him on the streets, sit beside him in the cars, and scrutinize him with a strictly professional eye in many places. Nor has he any clear conception of the relations that a good police officer maintains with members of this underworld. It is a world just as complete as that of business or society, however, and much of the time of a detective or police official is spent keeping track of people in it, forming acquaintances and connections in various ways, and establishing the organization of informants that will help in the direction and prevention of crime. A good detective is like a good salesman. He keeps track of his trade. Shortly after midnight of the first day, Commissioner Doherty received a message over the telephone that sent him uptown to meet an informant. At two o'clock in the morning of Friday, February 16th, he and this person had a talk at a fashionable uptown hotel. Indeed, most of the meeting with informants during this case were held at two well-known hotels, perhaps the last places in the city that anybody would connect with such conferences. Informants are not always right, nor always possessed of useful information, but this one had the first real clue. On the afternoon of the robbery, it was learned, a fellow known as Eddie Collins had come to his rooming house on the Lower West Side, told a woman with whom he lived, known as Swede Annie, to pack up and be ready to leave the city in a hurry, and presently disappeared with her. He was also reported to have a large roll of money. With a rough estimate of the size of this roll, given by the informant, and a dummy roll of stage money made up for the purpose, the police were able to judge that Collins must have had between $3,000 and $5,000. That would have been his probable share in a division of the stolen currency among five men. The house where Collins had lived was kept by a Mrs. Sullivan, Steps were at once taken to surround this woman, as the operation is known technically. For before a possible source of information like Mrs. Sullivan is followed up, it is necessary to know something about it. The person in question may be criminal, or in league with the underworld. On the other hand, he or she may be quite innocent, and willing to aid the police. The surround is an interesting operation. It is often made without the knowledge of the person investigated. In many cases, it takes time. Mrs. Sullivan came through the ordeal handsomely. She proved to be a wholesome, hard-working landlady, keeping a house that sheltered occasional suspicious characters, but entirely honest herself. She was not only able to furnish information about her late lodgers, but willing. "'Sure, it's a good deal I know about that Collins, as he calls himself,' she said. 
and mighty little that's good. It seems that about two weeks previously, Collins had offered to pay the landlady if she would appear in a Brooklyn court and testify to the good character of a criminal named Malloy, who was being held for trial on a charge of robbery. "'They're paying fifteen to twenty dollars for character witnesses,' said her lodger. "'And do you think I'd take the stand and perjure myself swearing for a man I never heard of?' asked the indignant landlady. "'Oh, that's nothing to some of the things we do.' was the reply. Several days later, while she was putting some laundry into Collins's bureau drawer, the landlady caught sight of two new blackjacks. She asked Collins what he was doing with such weapons. "'Ah, we use them in our business,' he said. Then, with the confidence often bred in criminals by success, he told her he knew a gang that was planning to rob a taxicab that carried money uptown to a bank every week. Mrs. Sullivan questioned him as to details, and he assured her it would be an easy job. "'For we've got it all fixed with the chauffeur,' he said. At that point, however, like many an honest person who might aid the police with information, Mrs. Sullivan let the matter drop out of her mind. It is a simple thing to mail a letter or telephone to police headquarters giving such information, and the experience of the detective bureau is such that the information can be investigated without involving innocent persons. But perhaps Mrs. Sullivan concluded that, in a big city like New York, it is well for people to keep their mouths shut or maybe she decided that Collins was merely boasting. On Friday, less than twenty-four hours after the robbery, a network investigation was begun. Sixty detectives searched that part of the city where Collins and Annie had lived, seeking further information. Photograph galleries and other places were investigated on the chance of finding pictures. Denizens of the underworld were talked with casually. Professional criminals, prostitutes, dive-keepers, receivers of stolen goods, and other shady characters were brought before Commissioner Doherty in couples and half-dozens for quick cross-examination. By Saturday evening, the police had some highly important information. It was learned that Annie had been seen going away on the afternoon of the robbery in a taxicab accompanied by two men, one of whom was Collins and the other unknown. Good descriptions were secured of Annie and her sweetheart, especially of her hat, which was a cheap affair, but conspicuous by reason of a row of little red roses. It was also discovered that Collins had been a boxer, that he hailed from Boston, and that his real name was Eddie Kinsman. Finally, the police secured two photographs, one an indifferent picture of Kinsman, and the other an excellent portrait of Annie. These were quickly put through the department's photograph gallery, where there are facilities for making duplicates in a hurry, 
and more than a hundred copies were soon ready for work, which will be described in its proper place. The trail now seemed to lead to Boston. At all events, further information was to be secured there, and here came in a little refinement imparted by Commissioner Doherty's experience with the Pinkerton forces. For where this private detective organization works unhampered over the whole country, the official police forces in most cities confine their searches to their own territory. When it is believed that criminals have left town, as in this case, a general description is telegraphed to other cities. Doherty's method, however, is always to send a man from his own staff with detailed instructions. There are no local boundaries for him. Late on Saturday night, Inspector Hughes of the Detective Bureau slipped out of headquarters with Detective O'Connell and took a train for Boston. Their departure was kept strictly secret. They bid good night to associates, saying that they expected to be up and at work again early next morning, and until their return on Monday, everybody who asked for the inspector was told that he is usually around the building somewhere. Montani points out King Dodo. All through Friday and Saturday, while the network investigation was going on, Commissioner Doherty continued his examination of Montani. Some important information against him now came from outside. It developed that Montani had been involved several months before in an insurance case, claiming indemnity for a burned automobile under a policy. He had presented, as part of its value, a bill for repairs amounting to $1,348. The insurance company, however, had found that this bill was fraudulent, that the repairs had never been made, and had obtained a statement to that effect from the Italian chauffeur. Out of pity for his wife and two children, the case was not pressed against him. Now that he was involved in another crime, however, the insurance people came forward and laid the facts before the police. Of course, Montani knew nothing about this new development. For two days, the chauffeur was questioned at intervals, and the inquiry centered chiefly on the knotty points in his story of the crime. He was particularly pressed for better explanations of the slackening of his cab when the robbers boarded it, but stuck to his original statement about a man getting in front of the vehicle. He described this person as an old man and said he must have been in league with the criminals. As the police had good evidence that there had been nobody in front of the taxicab, however, this point was returned to again and again, and toward night on Saturday, February 17th, the little chauffeur began to feel the strain. On his way to supper that evening with the men from the detective bureau, Montani was taken through the Bowery. Suddenly he stopped, dramatically, and exclaimed, there! That is the old man who got in front of my cab! 
His finger indicated a Bowery character, as typical as anything ever seen in melodrama. A ragged little old figure, with an amazing set of whiskers, engaged in picking up cigar butts along the gutters. He was immediately taken to headquarters. No detail of his work interests Commissioner Doherty more keenly than his study of the many picturesque characters who turn up as an important case unfolds. He has a ready appreciation of everybody who appears, from the society lady who lost her jewels to the typical Bowery loafer. He is as ready to look at facts from a criminal's point of view as that of an honest man. He has often gone half across the country to get acquainted with a good burglar, and in this warm human interest lies the basis of his skill as an examiner of suspects. These details are set down, not in glorification of Doherty, but for the guidance of every police officer interested in his methods. The moment Doherty laid eyes on this new character, with his magnificent whiskers, he gave him a nickname. "'King Dodo,' said the commissioner, and by that name he was known in so far as he figured in the case at all. King Dodo proved to be entirely innocent, and nothing more than the victim of a chance move of Montani's, who evidently thought that he ought to produce something tangible to back up his assertion that the cab had been intercepted by an old man. King Dodo established a perfect alibi, proving that he had been elsewhere at the time of the robbery, and after being questioned and the truth of his story established, he was released, there being no reason for holding him. "'I feel safe,' said the commissioner solemnly, "'in paroling you on your own responsibility, to appear again if wanted.' There may have been a heavier responsibility than had been put on his shoulders in years, but he rose to it. Two days later, a decently dressed, clean-shaven, elderly gentleman came in and asked for the commissioner. He was all dolled up in police parlance and looked like a retired small shopkeeper. The staff did not recognize him for a moment but it was King Dodo, doing his best to fill the part of a minor figure in the great taxicab mystery. There being nothing for him to do, he dropped back into private life. On his Sunday visit to Boston, Inspector Hughes talked with Chief Inspector Watts of that city, learned where Kinsman lived, and that his family was a respectable one found a bright patrolman named Dorsey who knew Kinsman, and gave more information about his personal appearance, habits and career as a boxer, desertion from the Navy, and so forth, and made arrangements to have the Kinsman home watched, so that news of his return would be secured immediately. It was clear that Kinsman had not returned to Boston. DISCOVERY OF KINSMAN'S TRAIL As soon as Inspector Hughes returned from Boston on Monday morning, the commissioner took steps to question the crews of every train that had left New York since 1 p.m. on the day of the robbery. 
Just the other afternoon, the writer sat with a squad of young detectives at police headquarters and heard a talk on methods given by Doherty, and one point clearly brought out was the usefulness to the thief-catcher of routine information. He began by relating an amusing incident. Some days before, a detective had turned up at headquarters for instruction and naively asked the commissioner to lend him a pencil and a slip of paper so he could make some notes. Another detective was found who had only a hazy idea of the location of New York's telephone exchanges. Taking these as his text, the commissioner explained the value to every police officer of what might be called timetable information, knowing the depots and ferries, what roads run out of them, the cities reached, the number and character of trains, the general methods of dispatching trains, and so forth. The commissioner himself is as well informed on such matters as any railroad man, and thoroughly familiar with routine methods in many other lines of work and business. How such knowledge can be employed was shown by the next move in the taxicab case. Detectives were sent to every railroad terminal to secure lists of trains, learn the names of the crews, and make out schedules of the time when each crew would be back in the city. Then each man was found and carefully questioned. His memory could be helped by pictures of Kinsman and Annie, and by intimate details of personal appearance and manner. The search bore fruit, though it took time. On Wednesday, Detective Watson, who was a railroad engineer before he joined the police, found that train number 13 on the New York Central had taken on three passengers answering the descriptions on the afternoon of the robbery. They had boarded the train at Peekskill, the town to which, as it was subsequently learned, they had ridden in a taxicab. The conductor's attention had been drawn to Annie by her smoking a cigarette on the sly in the toilet of the day coach. He remembered her high cheekbones and the black velvet hat with its little roses, and the athletic build of her men companions, who both appeared to be boxers. It was also established that the trio had gone to Albany, for one of the trainmen distinctly remembered helping Annie down at that station. End of section 4